You'll recall from last week I said, what I'm presenting here is one possible way of understanding it as far as the churches are concerned. And I know Mark went through these, um, the series as well. And, and the, the, few, the times that we could attend, uh, he did an excellent job, of course. This is simply another way of looking at it or maybe looking at different aspects of it. Um, in the long and short run, does it really make that much difference? Maybe not, you know, and as I mentioned, as we get into this stuff in Revelation, there's going to be things that I'm sure that we may not see eye to eye on. That's okay. Absolutely, 100% okay. Really, the only thing that I'll, the only hill that I'll die on, absolutely, where Revelation is concerned, is the fact that Jesus is coming back physically one day, and he will judge the world, and set up his millennial kingdom. Those, for me, are uh, hills I'll die. A lot of the other stuff in Revelation, as important as it is, is it is, and I do not want to minimize any of it. Um, it's all important. But there are differences of opinions, and there are valid differences of opinions. So I don't want to come in, and I think I kind of alluded to this in my email, I don't want to come in and say, this is the way to understand this. I'm, I'm not doing that. I yeah. think Revelation is probably one of the most controversial yeah, well, it, it chapters is. of the Bible. So, so that you're willing to teach, we're just grateful for that because yeah. everything is just, there's so, it's fraught with... It is, it is. And as I said the first night, it is complex, mm -hmm. but it's really not, in my view, complicated. So, but there is a lot of controversy and we'll, we'll touch on a few. We'll say some people might go this way, some people might go this way. But, you know, what I'm giving you is generally what I think. And so you can sit there and say, Fred, I agree with you on that one, that one, that one, that one, no. And that's okay. That's perfectly fine. I'm sure when I stand before the Lord, I'm going to find out all the things that I thought I was right on in this life, and I'll find out I was totally wrong. But that's okay. All right, so Church at Sardis. This possibly could represent the church of the Reformation, that period which is AD 1517 to 1648, and of course it's Revelation 3, 1 to 6. And uh, it doesn't have to represent this. It's a possibility. As I mentioned, people like uh, Dr. Harry Ironsides and a few others kind of came up with this. They thought, ah, oh, you know what, that really kind of fits when you study history. And I think there's some validity to it, uh, but we don't need to be hung up on it. But as far as the Church of Sardis, it was a very interesting church. They were alive, but they were dead. They were just dead. You ever been, well, you have to raise your hand. I've been to a church that's alive, been alive, but dead. And you probably have too. I mean, they're just dead. They're, they're kind of going through motion. They're doing what they think is the right thing to do and saying the right words. But inside, they're lacking this real deep commitment to the Lord. You know? And, and it happens. And, of course, we can see that throughout history of Israel, too. They have these like this. Most of the time, it was like this, but, you know, it was there. It was, you know, there were some people, you look at Moses and Joshua. Joshua was his assistant for just about forever. And uh, imagine being Joshua. 
I can't imagine being Moses, where you walk in and you're dealing with God literally face to face. He saw God's form. And Josh, imagine how, when he was able to tell Joshua, the conversations they had. And I'm sure he saw the changes in Moses because of that. But anyway, here's the church at Sardis. They're kind of, they're there, but they're dead. And Sardis means those escaping. That's what the word Sardis means. And he is the seven spirits of God. And we talked about this the first week, that it could refer to angels or pastors. When, when it talks about he that has the seven spirits of God. The other thing is it, it could also connect to Isaiah where it talks about the attributes of the Holy Spirit. So it could refer to that too. It could refer to all those things. Condemned because they have a name that lives but are dead. Those escaping. They're escaping but it wasn't really showing in their life. Um, you know, it's funny. I, um, I've been a drummer for years. Uh, I just, within this past year, I decided, I said to Sylvia, I said, you know what, I don't want to, I've been drumming since fifth grade, and, and I'm almost 65, and I said to Sylvia, I don't want to do this anymore, because my hearing is going, I wonder why, and, you know, <laughs> the whole bit, and so I basically took my acoustic set and my electronic set, and I said, David, my son, here you go, and he's a drummer too, coming up in the same fashion as I did, no lessons, you just kind of teach yourself in that but what was interesting is because I was into music and drumming and all that, some of my, some of the people I followed after in the sense of the musical ability were people like Neil Peart of Rush and uh, Steve Smith of Journey and some of those people. Uh, but it's really interesting when I heard of Neil Peart's passing, I think it was a year or two ago, he, had, he passed with brain cancer. And here was a guy who had immense talent. I mean, absolutely immense talent as a drummer. And not only that, but what was really rare about him is he wrote all the lyrics for every song Rush produced. And yet, he was a guy who said, years ago, God is dead. God's dead. And he went on with his life. And I thought to myself, the day he died, I thought, now, unfortunately, he knows the truth. He knows it. And he's probably he's going to spend eternity wishing for a do-over. That that to me is such a scary thought. Such a scary thought. So here these people were, they, they were escaping from what? Death. Eternal death. Because they had escaped to eternal life. And yet they weren't living as if it was the most exciting thing happening to them. So Jesus was saying, Look, you've got a name that lives, but you're dead. And it was a valid, literally a valid description of the Church of the, of the Reformation. We know, you know your history, you know what happened during the Reformation. It was not a pretty thing where the, the church became married to the state and then the Inquisition started. And all this stuff, I mean, it was just unbelievable. So they had correct doctrine, although in the Reformation there was a lot of missteps with their doctrine, as I'm sure you know, I won't bore you with the details, but they had doctrinal correction and good creed. So they knew what they were believing. Yeah. They knew it. You know, they could rattle it off. But 
this became a huge problem. And it's interesting because every church that came out of the Reformation, every denomination, eventually became married to the state, whether it was Lutheranism, Anglicanism, um, what are the other ones, Episcopalian, all those became ultimately married to the state. And it's really sad because the state then used the churches or had control over them. And they became spiritually dead. There was no vitality in these churches whatsoever. No vitality. And the churches, as I said, that broke away, they all became state churches. So, Jesus is saying, look, raise up again. Resurrect that which is about to die. They're that close to being totally spiritually dead. You've got a spark left in you. Bring it back to the surface. Fan it into a flame, as Paul would say. Go back to spiritual life as well as sound doctrine of priests. And really, isn't this the thing that isn't this the thing that affects every Christian today? Yeah. Yeah. It really is. I mean, it is hard. Uh, that's, I think, what I love most about Mark's personal. I don't care if he tells me the same story again. You know, <laughs> kids today. But, you know, we all deal with this. We all deal with this every day. Where the rubber meets the road. How do I live my life today as a Christian so that God sees me living this life for his glory from my heart. How do I do that? And so Jesus is, through John, exhorting them to literally fan this back into a flame. Fan it into a flame. And commended because they did exercise faith. They weren't completely dead. They had some faith. So use it. Use it to be where you need to be. So... The promise to them is that they're going to have white garments, which represents, of course, the purity of salvation. And their names not blotted out. And this is interesting because a lot of times commentators will take this to mean, see, your name can be blotted out of the book of life. You can lose your salvation. But really, that's not what this is saying, in my opinion. What it's saying is, I guarantee you that once your name's in the book of life, it's not going to be blotted out. That's really what that's saying, and I'm sure you understand that. Can you imagine this, though? Look at this last phrase. Your names will be confessed before the angels. That is absolutely amazing. That Jesus is going to tell our name to the angels. Isn't that something? Paul talks about the elect angels of God in one of his letters. I think it's Titus, but don't hold me on to that one. And the whole implication is just the elect angels of God is that the language implies that some angels could not fall. So as much as they minister to us and serve God, they fully cannot appreciate how difficult it is for us fallen people to live a life of purity and consistency before God. Because for them, those elect angels that can't fall, they don't know any different. They aren't tempted. They aren't, for them, you know, what? Not serve God? What are you talking about? How can I not do that? And by the way, that's of course the way we will be, which is going to be awesome. I can't imagine it. So that's the Church of Sardis. Church of Philadelphia is the Church of the Great Missionary Movement, A.D. 1648 to 1900. This is a fascinating situation. Revelation 3, 7 through 13 outlines this church. And what's really interesting, Jesus says, you have kept my word. What was his word? Go 
preach, make disciples of all nations, right? Well, they did this. You're familiar, I'm sure, with Hudson Taylor, um, some of those other people that just, they gave up everything, became missionaries to China, became missionaries to this place, that place. Do it. They did everything in love. Mission projects to South America, African missions, share the good news, share the gospel. This is what this church was about. Even though it's really interesting, Philadelphia literally means, um, well, you tell me, it means brotherly love, right? Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about that, it's not brotherly love in the sense that we have love for other people. There's actually something negative about this in Philadelphia because the king, the emperor there, had a real affection for his brother that wasn't really wholesome. So it became brotherly love, which took on a negative connotation. But today we understand that that's not what that means. We understand, we think, well, again, when you love others, when you when you have brotherly love to people, you're loving them. You're doing unto them as Jesus would do unto you. And that's okay, too. But that's just where the origin comes from. He has the key of David. This goes back to Isaiah 22, 20, and 23. And it ultimately refers to Jesus because he's the one who has the key of David. He was given the key of David. Becomes, he comes from that line. And wasn't the promise to David that mm -hmm. there will always be someone from your progeny who sits on your throne? Well, obviously that's fulfilled in Christ. So that's what that's about. And then they're commended for making use of the open door. What's really fascinating today is if you look at the time frame of this this church of what it represents as far as in the church age, and then you compare it today, there are a lot of places in the world that are 100% closed to missionaries. I mean, you look at China. If, if Hudson Taylor, well, he, he may be able to see it today, but if he were alive today, he would be shocked at what happened in China since he was there. Absolutely shocked. So they were commended, that particular church was make, for making use of the open door. And then during the period in our age, 1700 to 1900, as I mentioned, there was virtually no place that you could not go as a missionary. The world was, I mean, it was wide open. Not today. Not today. There's so many places that are completely off limits. And I know missionaries that have gone to some of these places and they have to be, they're like walking on eggshells in that society. They just have to be literally wise as serpents and gentle as doves because of what, what they happens have to there. Sneak in Bibles and I'm sorry? they have to sneak in Bibles and stuff like that. I oh, mean, yeah. they can't bring yeah. them in. Promise fruit from those who claim to be Jews or people of God and are not. So there's this chance that it, there's this possibility, this is interesting here, and again, we don't know for sure what this means. I'm sure some commentators will, you know, say, oh, I know what this means. It's hard to know. It could reference those cults who claim to be true Jews. And we have some of those today, which I think is interesting. Have you ever heard of the Church of God Almighty? They have about eight different names. They're, it's absolutely astounding. But it could be a reference to one of those who claim to be true Jews. And by the way, I'm sure you know that Mormons believe they are true Jews, and so do Jehovah's Witnesses. My aunt, who, they were raised um, Lutheran, and 
when she became an adult, she converted to Jehovah's Witnesses. And of course, her she married a husband who was Roman Catholic. He was not really into religion anymore, so all the kids were raised Jehovah's Witnesses. But they, when I talked with her, like they are the true Jews. They're the true Jews. And uh, of those, this group, 144,000 of them have already been marked. And you know, and then I said, well, what about the rest of you? Well, we're in a waiting period for what? You know, so it's it's really interesting. Um, she knew scripture very well, but it was never in context, which was sad. Very sad. Maybe a reference to the Great Tribulation period, verse 10. There's just a number of things that it could be a reference to. Um, oh, so in verse 9, is it, Indeed I make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but a lie? Is that what you were referring yes. to? Okay. And it obviously happened during... John's day, because he's talking to that church. Okay. I should open up scripture here on my Bible. What's, what verse was that? Nine? That was nine. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, um, obviously, there's great differences of opinion over that particular verse. And I'm not sure I really want to get into it unless we want to get into it. <laughs> but I remember when Mark went through this, he said uh, he uh, agreed that some people view this as a potential pointing to the tribulation and then he said there's also another way you can look at this which I agree with him on that God is with us Christ is with us through every situation we face right. the the difficulty here though is when the verse says from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world it's implying there that something's going to affect the entire world. And it's not just the known world, because remember, we're in Revelation 3 here, so already John is looking at what is, but what is coming. He's, he's already going to be making that transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4. So I generally take that. I absolutely 100% agree with Mark that, uh, yes, Jesus is with me in everything, whether I think he is, just like he said this morning, or not. Yeah. And, and my heart was out to Joseph. What, what that young man had to live through. But God must have also buoyed him up as well, to some extent. Mm -hmm. But I also think there's probably a little bit more here, just for me. I mean, I, I think in the way I think of this, there's probably a little bit more here that the, that which is going to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I can see why some biblicists and commentators take that to mean that there's a, there's a it's intimating that the tribulation is going to happen, and the tribulation, as we know, from when we get into starting with chapter six of Revelation through eighteen, and then nineteen is basically a recap of that. But as we know, that's that's the, the tribulation from six to eighteen. 
So we'll, when we get there, we'll figure out what that means. But you might want to just put a little note in there or something saying it could possibly be referring to the Great Tribulation period. Well, Remember, one, one way or the other, yes. whether it was at that point or the Great Tribulation, those people were all dead. Right. Yes. Right. So they were kept from it. They were kept from it. Whether, you know, whether it was... Yeah, you're right. They are kept from it. And we don't know what that... What does it mean? I mean, again, commentators are divided when it says, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth, the whole world. I've read so many different interpretations of that, and many of them truly seem valid because the people that study these things, you know, they, they know the Greek, they know the languages, they know the nuances of the language, so I have to read what they're saying and seriously consider it because when I took Greek, it was only for a semester, and then I took Hebrew for a semester. So, you know, it's, it's kind of... It takes a lifetime, as you know, to really get get on on board with that stuff. But anyway, that's possible. So we'll move on. And then they will serve as a pillar in the temple of God. Now, this is interesting because this is a figure of speech, of course, right? I mean, imagine if we get to heaven and God says, excellent. You stand right there. You're that pillar. You're the obviously he's not saying we're going to be a physical pillar, right? So what is he actually saying in verse 12? He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So he's talking about people who are not just Christians, but Christians who literally overcome. And there is a big difference, right? I mean, I look back on my life and I can see where I was a kind of a Christian in name only. I was a Christian. You get that salvation, God grants it to you, he never takes it back. You cannot, nothing will take you out of his hand, including you. But there, I wasn't living the way I should be living. But this is talking about people who are so sold out to God that they overcome. And, and the sense here is that they may die a martyr's death, but they will overcome rather than give in. And if you want to read some interesting reading, I, I strongly recommend, and Mark may have mentioned this, Box's Book of Martyrs. Wow. That is just... I mean, these are eyewitness testimonies of people who died for Jesus. Just, and, and you read some of these things and you're, you're kind of almost brought to tears because you go, wow, wow. All right, so this is uh, the Church of the Missionary Movement, Philadelphia. They will have three new names. I mentioned those. So any questions on Philadelphia? And they're exhorted to continue doing well. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be nice? I remember when I was growing up, there were times I wish my dad had said, keep going on. You're doing right, Freddie. But there were many times where he said, no, that's not cut. And he was Italian, so it got to a point where all he had to do was give me a look. And the look was enough to tell me that, okay, I definitely overstepped. All right, let's move on. Laodicea. Oh, this is the interesting. This is the interesting. I always think of this as, okay. Church of Apostasy, A.D. 1900 to present day. If we were to put this, and I, I have a graph here 
at the end that I'll show you um, that kind of gives the timeline. This is Revelation 3, 14 through 22. This is what's called the lukewarm church. You are lukewarm. All show, no substance. I bet you can't think of any church like that. <laughs> right? These churches, Happy New Year, let's party. Oh, we're going to have a carnival at our church. Not that there's anything wrong with this stuff, necessarily, but when it becomes and takes over what the church is, yes, there's a problem here. Um, this is the church where we constantly hear this message proclaimed by Christ, where he says, uh, and we'll come back to this, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. How many times have you heard that? And there's nothing wrong with that. How many times have you heard that as an invitation to receive salvation? Right? But the problem is, he's talking here in context to a group of believers. We have to assume they're believers. And he's saying, um, hello? I'm, I'm outside. If you, could, if you could just, if you invite me in, it's going to be totally different. Just invite me in. Would you please... Hello? I mean, that's what he's doing. So these people, he's saying this to a group of people who we have to assume are believers. But they have become so lukewarm that they have no substance. And the reason this is probably one of the most important churches, at least for us, is because we see this big time today. Paul, 1 Timothy uh, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 5, where he talks about, but I tell you this, I'm paraphrasing, in the end times, it's going to be terrible. People will be lovers of themselves, proud, boastful. And he gives that whole list. And you know who he's talking about? He's talking about people in the church. He is not talking to people or about people outside the church. He's talking about people inside. Peter kind of reiterates the same kind of thing in his second epistle. And this is what we're faced with today. People, and COVID, by the way, has made it worse. Mm -hmm. COVID has made it worse. And I don't even want to get off talking about COVID, but this is the first time since I've been alive that the economy was shut down, literally shut down. And churches were literally shut down. And if you lived in the state we used to live in, in California, it was against the law for you to have church. Um, Pastor Pawlowski from Canada was arrested twice. You know what this charged with? Inciting people to go to church simply because he left the doors open and he came to church on Sunday prepared to preach to people and to worship them. This is the first time this happened, so COVID has made it worse. Well, that um, happened to John MacArthur, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, Coates was another one in Canada. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's just unreal. I mean, they even went and they put a fence, a double fence around, around his church. church. But he got up at a press conference and said, that building is not the church. Mm -hmm. Amen. We're still meeting. Amen. And I know, way in the beginning, way in the beginning, I get it. You know, nobody knew what this was. Okay, yeah. let's take a break. Yeah, we better. Seemed like the better part of valor to do something a little bit more cautious mm -hmm. at first. 
But then even John MacArthur, after two weeks, he goes, we did that for two weeks. And then they kept changing and moving the goalposts. And then they kept moving the goalposts. And they kept moving the goalposts. And then people started showing up. Yeah, he just said people just came. And, and has, I've been in his sanctuary at a shepherd's conference, and it holds well over 3,000 people. And there's all these people clamoring to go to church. They wanted to go to church. So we, we've got this situation here in Laodicea, which I think mirrors what's going on almost worldwide today where church is kind of like it's entertainment it's entertainment it's more like a circus Mm -hmm. and it's just to get people there it doesn't it's not to feed the body it's about just getting people there like you know if they're in the if they're in the church they'll be saved well that we know that's not true so right and and the idea is what is the purpose of the church well there's obviously disagreement but isn't part of it to equip the saints Mm -hmm. yes if we get equipped properly When we leave those doors, like I love that sign out there, it says you're now entering the mission field. Amen. That's exactly what our job is. That's exactly what our job is. We go out because Mark equips us, and then we go out and we can maybe start spreading the truth of the gospel, and maybe more people will start following us back to this place. You know, not that this is the only place, but it's a pretty, pretty good place. Destination, Laodicea means people ruling. And the faithful and true witness, of course, is none other than who? Jesus. I'm sorry? Jesus. You're right. He's the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. Yep. Mm-hmm. The beginning of the creation of God. That's very interesting. I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. And of course, what I love about all of these, and we don't really have time to get into this, is that this references the uh, aqueducts and the underground water situations in many of those areas. So cold water is wonderful. Man, is that refreshing in a Georgia summer. That is so refreshing. And then when you take a shower, you want it hot. (laughs) When it's lukewarm, you're like, it doesn't taste good. So, and it's interesting, if you study Roman history and how they did the aqueducts, they could truck in water that was heated from underground springs, and it would still be heated by the time it got to the place. And they could truck in cold water through the aqueducts that was cold. So this is the only church with no commendation. There was nothing Jesus could look at and say, I like the way you're doing this. He couldn't do that couldn't do it at all and they were condemned for being lukewarm hot here in this sense are the truly saved ones the cold are not believers and don't claim to be a lot of cold people are actually antagonistic of the gospel and you know when you see a person like that you know there's hope you know there's hope when you see someone who goes I'm good yeah oh you're a Christian cool I'm an atheist. Great. Oh, terrific. Yeah, that's good for you. You you sit there and you see their attitude that there may not be a whole lot of hope. Obviously, we can't know their heart. We can't know what God's going to do. God can save whatever and whomever he chooses to. The lukewarm are those who claim to be believers but aren't necessarily professing Christians. They, um, some of them could be, and they could just be backslidden. So verse 17 characterized as richness in worldly goods, self-deceived because they're spiritually poor, blind, and naked. I was reading Amos the other day. It's a very short book. 
and I was reading it, it was very interesting that um, it was talking about the, the wives of these rich Jewish men. And Amos calls them the cows of Bashan. Mm. And he calls them cows because they just, they were just sitting in their luxury. They would say to their husbands, I need you to bring me this so I can drink that wine. Get this for me. And their husbands would go out and get it for them. And they had no concern about the people around them. None. Not as far as the other Israelites were concerned. They, they built these beautiful stone-hewn homes that were just gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And God says through the prophet, but you're not going to get to live in it. You planted these vineyards that are just go on for acres. They're beautiful. They're going to give beautiful crop, but you're not going to get to drink any. It reminds me of when we lived in California, because we didn't live too far away. Nobody really wanted to live in Hollywood, the bigwigs, the, the people who had tons of money. They did not want to live in Hollywood. So they would, they would usually live up where we lived in Sacramento, because it was only an hour flight. So 30 minutes away from us is Eddie Murphy's $12 million home on the top of this hill, where he overlooked everybody else. And there were a lot of stars and celebrities like that. But they just they just lived in this richness, you know? And they thought they were all that. And <laughs> but they still were in California. They were still <laughs> yeah, that too. So anyway, they were characterized as richness and worldly goods, and they were self-deceived because they were spiritually poor. And they couldn't even see it. They couldn't even see it. They were rich, prosperous, like in the days of Amos. Some of those old books, I mean, it's funny what you'll, you'll, you can read Amos 14 times or read the Bible all the way through and then all of a sudden you'll go, oh, I never noticed that before. And just something jumps out at you. And it's, it's, it's interesting. So apostasy here is the departure from truth that one professes to have. This is why we're talking about the visible church. Because as I mentioned the first week, the visible church is comprised of true Christians, true believers, and people who think they're believers. Okay? So it does not mean they actually possess the truth and characterizes the church of today. Now, the apostasy of the visible church was predicted in two really important New Testament passages. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 3. And it talks about the day of the Lord here. And the day of the Lord is an interesting term because it is used many times throughout Scripture find it? I think so. Okay, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And then he is goes that on. Second Thessalonians? I think so. No. Oh, yeah, no, actually it is. Oh, no, you're right. That's Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Sorry. Oh, man, now I have to edit that. Out of <laughs> Here we go. Sorry. I just threw that extra verse of Scripture. In it's, just, it's, just, it's good. Scripture. It is. Yeah. All right, let's do the real one here. Second Thessalonians 2. 1 to 3. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, 
either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. We'll get into him later. But but Paul is talking about the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is, is referred to as many things throughout Scripture. One of the things it's referred to as the day of Jacob's trouble. And so Daniel also talks about it in chapter 9 of Daniel, verses 24 through 27. And there it's referred to as a week. And when we get to that part, we can discuss why it's a week. The day of the Lord always includes the tribulation period. It doesn't matter what verbiage is being applied to it, it always includes the tribulation period. Some believe it also includes the rapture, if the rapture happens before the tribulation period. Some extend it to include the tribulation period and the physical return of Jesus and his judging of the nations. So they thought it had already come. Who? In that verse where they say it as oh, if, yeah, they as did. though they the day of the Lord had come. Right. They were okay. confused and that's what he's trying to help them straighten okay. out. Two things will occur first. Falling away. Greek word is apostosia, the apostasy. And you probably, you may have heard, you probably have heard, that some take this to mean when it says, um, as though the day of the Lord, no one, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, apostosia. And they actually try to connect this with rapture. But in my opinion, you can't do that. Because that's not really what the word means. Um, the, the rapture is not a falling away, it's a being caught up. It's a little bit different, but. Um, character of the apostles. I'm yeah. sorry, sir? In Greek. Right. And in Roman. Right. It's an entirely different word. It was. It was. And, and you can't, as I mentioned too, I know you don't do this, but for the people who think like that, what they're doing, unfortunately, is they're just taking a word divorcing it from its context, and then say, I think it means this. They're well, trying to make it mean what they want. Exactly, yeah. which is what we call eisegesis. When you look in the Bible and you go, you read into it what you want it to mm -hmm. say, instead of exegesis taking out God's meaning, which is what we're trying to do here. And we may not catch every point, but character of apostasy is 1 Timothy 4.1, which is the doctrine of demons. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Wow. And that's happening today. I, I'm not sure uh, how much you read uh, all this stuff that's going on with the different churches and some of the people that are out there pushing mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff, but it is absolutely amazing to me what is out there. It's all uh, the mysticism. It largely, yeah. it, it's all, it's, a lot of it is mysticism, and I don't mean that in the sense of a, a, a true spiritual mystic. We're talking about mysticism in a secular sense. So character of apostasy, doctrine of demons. Apostates have essentially given in to seducing spirits and preaching a system of doctrine of demons. This existed during Paul's day. So how much more is it going to exist today, Right? 2 Peter 2, 1 through 22, we're not going to read that whole thing, but you can jot that down and look it up later. Apostates teach destructive denials. These are just some, and, and this has been around forever, the denial of the Trinity, 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Denial of the Incarnation. 
there was the, you know, that Jesus, he wasn't really a physical man. Get your head out of the sand. He was a phantom. That's Gnosticism. That's what Gnostics believe. And I've met a few modern-day Gnostics. They're interesting. You feel sorry for them, but denial of second coming of Messiah. Um, There are people alive today that believe that Jesus actually returned spiritually in A.D. 70. I think I mentioned to you when Rome was destroyed. Excuse me, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. So they believe he came back then spiritually. But that's not what Acts 1 says. That's not what Jesus himself said. That's not what Paul teaches. Jesus is coming back physically. And every eye will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will go, yeah, uh oh. <laughs> That's yes. going through. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Going through. Uh, I don't want to hear myself talk the whole time. They taught the disciples, Jesus. They taught more about his return, his coming back. Corinthians with Paul talked more about Jesus coming back than they talk about heaven. Oh, you yeah. know, we preach going to heaven a lot, right? But mm-hmm. they, I mean, it might have been. Five percent of what they talked right. about heaven. Right. They talk about Jesus return, Jesus return, Jesus return, yeah. Jesus return. I know. You know the. I know. So I, I don't. I don't know where we. Anyhow, Satan just, infiltrates and gets the ear of somebody, and then they start spreading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, you look at how Mormonism developed. Oh. Who would have thought, <laughs> two hundred years after that thing began, that we would have people? It's yeah. incredible to me. And there are people alive, as I'm sure you know, that believe that they are the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. They are the Messiah. They are, right now. If you ask them, they will tell you. There's a church in the Philippines. He has over 10,000 members. He believes he is Jesus in the second coming. He absolutely believes this. And the people who follow him absolutely believe this. So then there's the denial of the person and work of the Messiah, denial of inspiration of scriptures. This was a big one. I just rebought a book because over the years I lost it or misplaced it or something. The Battle for the Bible, Harold Wenzel. You ever read that one? That was from the 70s. The Battle for the Bible. It was incredible. It literally was a battle because there were higher critics, they call themselves, who said, no, I don't think God... No, this isn't really inspired. There's some great stuff in here, but no, no, it's not inspired. And these Matter of fact, I can point out real. some mistakes. Yeah, and the miracles weren't real. And yeah. well, when I was in seminary, I had to change seminaries <laughs> because the one I went to was highly recommended to me. So I went there, and we had an Old Testament professor who based and a New Testament professor who both denied. They both denied miracles. So the New Testament professor was like, you know, when Jesus stood up to calm the sea, he he didn't really calm the sea. He knew what a squall was and how long it would last. So he basically got up at the end of the boat around the time he felt that this thing would die and went through the motions and then it died. And I'm sitting there going to myself, really? Really? You work here, right? Yeah. You have a PhD? But yeah, that's, you know, so that's been around for a while. Other characteristics of apostates. Mocking. You, you know all this stuff. I'm quoting Jude 17 and 19. We're seeing this a lot today. 
Where's the promise of his coming to? Well, they've been saying that forever. Well, yeah, 2,000 years ago, Jesus started saying it. They will mock the doctrine of his second coming. Schisms will deny some of the fundamentals of the faith because of their heretical teachings. And this is going on. I don't want to bore you with all this stuff, but Paul talks about the fact that there should be no fellowship with apostates. Mm -hmm. There's no commonality between light and dark. It doesn't mean we hate these people, right? It just means certainly we need to pray for them and to witness to them, but we can't worship with them because of that. And the context of 2 Corinthians is not necessarily dealing with marriage, but fellowship of believers. And he throws marriage in there too. Worshiping with unbelievers is an unequal yoke. Now, if someone, if I have an unbelieving friend and I bring them to church with me here, wonderful. Right. If they want to bring me to their church, Eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. We'll see. There can be no fellowship between righteous and unrighteous. No communion between light and dark. So that's basically no agreement between Satan and Messiah. We know that Satan is a liar from the beginning. He's a murderer as well. We are the temple of God. We need to live it and act like it. And this is what Jesus is all, he's all preparing John for this for what's coming, what he's going to reveal to him. I can't imagine what John saw. I mean, we have an idea of what he saw in his visions, and of course we'll, we'll break those down, but imagine how terrifying some of that stuff would have been to see. Even from heaven's perspective, you know? Ultimately, the apostasy involves the Bible plus something else. Uh, just a couple of ideas here. 1948, the World Council of Churches was organized on two principles. Unify all churches. Doesn't matter what they agree with or don't agree with. Just let us, let's unify them. The unity of all religions. Ecumenism. Ecumenism. There is a big movement afoot today for Chrislam. I don't know if you're familiar with that or have heard it. It's the blending of Christianity with Islam. That's scary. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's actually starting right now over there in the Middle East. They're starting to, they've chosen a spot. They want to build a physical center that will celebrate Chrislam. They did it in Abu Dhabi, didn't they? Build the, there's like three temples right there. There's a Jewish temple. Or Has it been built yet? I think so. Okay. But I think it's I'll in Abu Dhabi. Wouldn't surprise me. No. But anyway, and unfortunately this particular pope is all for it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you know, so, all right. 1950, uh, and not just the pope, but a number of quote-unquote Christian leaders are too. Federal Council of Churches reorganized into National Council of Churches, and their attempt was to unify all churches in the U.S., again, along liberal tenets. And I don't like this word, because they're not liberal today. In the 60s and 70s, they were liberal, when they said, I may disagree with you, but I will fight for your right to say that. Today, it's like, I disagree with you, you need to stop. Cancel culture, that's what, so they're not liberals, they're that's what Marxists do. But anyway, that's what it was based on. So, unfortunately, the visible church is becoming more and more primarily apostate today, and it's sad to see, but it was predicted in Scripture. That's what Paul said. It's going to happen. But at the same time, I honestly believe there is still, there are many, many people ripe for the harvest. Honestly. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we're going to see that more and more. It appears religious and spiritual, but they have destructive 
And they are tossed to and fro. Yeah. Wow. So this is the chart I was mentioning to you, and I'm going to put this up. So if you want to download this stuff, you can. But this just gives you a brief overview, a synopsis of where the periods fall, if, in fact, this is really what they are. All right, we're going to, we have 10 minutes. Would you like me to at least start, or should we just stop now? Yeah, I'm going to start. You want me to start? Is that okay? All right. Living in the last generation. We will stop in 10 minutes. <laughs> All right. This is living in the last generation, which you know, they've said that every generation could be the last. It's certainly possible we are. Um, and this, we're going to kind of take a quick detour from Revelation, but this is indirectly tied to it. We're going to go to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, um, Mark 13, and Luke 21. So this particular set of slides that we'll do today and probably next time is dealing with the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus sheds a great deal of light on the, the last generation and the timing of events as they lead up to what happens in Revelation. So what's really interesting about this is, honestly, if you look at the way the world is going today, it's not too far-fetched to see that we're probably heading toward some type of one-world type governance. Yeah. Who, who, who doesn't see this? I mean, they're actually talking about it. So we're moving ahead, and to make that happen, some of the possible situations are a complete economic crash, a severe food shortage, and I've been <laughs> reading more about this, and probably so have you, with the supply chain disrupted, and the truckers doing what they're doing. First, they're being told, you can't cross border unless you're vaccinated, which makes absolutely no sense to me because trucking is a lonely industry. You have one man or woman driving a truck to a place where they're gonna pick up supplies. Somebody else loads that truck for them. They don't load the truck. Somebody else does because of union rules. Then they drive it to a destination. When they get there, somebody unloads it. So I'm not sure what the big beef is about that truck driver needs to be vaccinated, uh, but control. Oh, yeah. yeah, it is, it is ultimately. So we may also see civil wars rising and now we've got this specter of Russia, supposedly Tuesday morning, <laughs> Tuesday morning, Russia is gonna invade Ukraine and Ukraine used to be part of Russia and Biden, I'm not sure what he's doing. I'm sorry? Soviet Union. Soviet. Yes, correct, yeah. correct. Yes, and so I don't really honestly know what's going on behind the scenes right there, honestly, but we've got that, and we've got these well, other but things. But even are, here with civil wars, I mean, I feel like here, I mean, and this is just through all the training I'm having to take, I mean, there's oh. a lot of racial tension that yeah. used to not exist. Yeah. Right. But that is just much worse now. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Sylvia has to attend these uh, equity trainings at work, which, well, I won't, well, I can always edit this out, but it's like, 
Yeah. Well, it's just, it, you know, it, it's separating, mm -hmm. you know, where, you know, I felt like, you know, this country worked so hard to be inclusive of all races, and now it's separating races and, and well, creating years a ago, lot of animosity. Years ago, we were taught, I was raised, you know, judge a person by their color, you don't even really notice their color. People right. are people. Right. And now we're being told the exact opposite. Well, no, you have to celebrate the person's culture and their color. And it's like, so yeah, it's, it's creating schisms. Uh, the Club of Rome, I don't know if you've you ever heard of the Club of Rome? Mm -hmm. Okay, Club of Rome is, uh, there's a, it was a member, 300 people were involved in this, they still are. It's one of those secret clubs like Bilderbergs and all that stuff. Well, if you go on the internet, you can, you can look up where they have literally divided the world up into 10 areas. It's there. So I downloaded, I don't have it here, but I downloaded it just to look at it. It was very interesting. They divided it up into 10 areas. Every nation was included in one of those 10 areas. What does that remind you? Well, Revelation 17, when we get there, the 10 kings. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's also mentioned in Revelation 13 as well. And then, of course, Daniel 7, 23, a fourth kingdom of the earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms shall devour the whole earth. This is important because it's not talking about their, the known world at that time. This is looking way down the end into the future and saying this fourth kingdom that we first learn about in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that's going to wind up devouring the entire world. And then trample it and break it in pieces. And then the ten horns are ten kings. Well, we see that in Daniel 7, and then we see it again in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. So obviously these ten horns, these ten kings, and the ten toes of the statue in Daniel 2 are telling us the same thing, and it's very important. Who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them? This is the guy we need to be concerned about. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three of them. And we can get into all this stuff later. This is just kind of introductory. So the fourth kingdom of Daniel will devour the whole earth. And um, it really is interesting because it seems like that's what the world is heading for now. You know, I, I sometimes drive around and I go, you know, is there going to come a day when churches are going to be closed and people are going to be meeting at homes? Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, I mean, we're going to be under pretty much, even in the United States, it's, it's pretty interesting. This has not happened yet, obviously. We don't have that fourth kingdom yet, but I believe it's on approach. That's just my personal opinion. I could be off. From this one kingdom, the world will be divided into ten parts. And I think the reason they do this is just to keep track of it better. So you're going to have these ten kings, one king over each part of the world. So the world can be completely controlled. And the technology that we have today, Hitler would have literally died for. <laughs> really? He, he would have loved the technology that we have today. And, and I don't know, I'm not really much of a techie or that geeky. My son knows much more than I do. But the world must experience some type of global crash first, whether it's all-out war or it's economic or it's supply chain, whatever, or, or just a bunch of pieces all coming together. I really don't know. Everybody, you go on the internet, everybody has their opinion about what's going to happen. And, and they could be right. So if you look at this, many nations throughout the world have already gone bankrupt. Um, and they just keep printing money. European Union, this is not as strong as it used to be, but it's interesting because the European Union is exactly, almost the exact area where ancient Rome was. So it's really interesting the way this is happening. Um, 
This is absolutely true, more yeah. so today than ever. <laughs> more than ever. I mean, my goodness. Since our latest person took over the White House, it's like the first... Huh? Accelerated. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, the first thing he did was what? Close the pipeline. Put thousands of people out of jobs, and then instantly gas prices went up. But it wasn't just gas prices. Because if it costs more to get the goods to the store because I have to pay more for gas, then those goods are going up too. So it's, it's you know, you know, so do I. All right, we're going to finish this slide and then be done for tonight. We're moving towards some type of big crash. And maybe I should change this to we're moving toward a great reset. Yeah, there you go. And a great narrative. From this, a one world government will rise. From here, a 10 nation confederate. Confederacy will exist, and this makes it, as I said, easier to control. Okay, so we finished three or four slides. So next time we'll continue with this. And then once we're done with this, we're going to get back into Revelation 4 and move on from there. But we're still going to have to go back and touch on other things like we did with Daniel 7, mm -hmm. which touches on Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. Just the way that works. And we'll be in Ezekiel too. And we are going to eventually be in Ezekiel. If you get time, you might want to read Ezekiel 38 and 39 again, or 36 through 39, the chapters. Any questions or comments? <coughs> Is this going a good thing? Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And and like I said, it is complex, but it really isn't complicated because it breaks down really pretty easily. But if I go too fast or if I spend too much time on something, just say, Fred, you're going too fast or you're spending too much time on something, um, I'm fine with that. And if there's something else you want to discuss more, we can do that too. Whatever you'd like to do. Anything else? Yeah, and if you want to do some more research, just start reading up on Agenda 2030, if you haven't already, which is actually a UN document. So, um, and, and it, that's what they're trying to push the world to. That's where all this climate change, green energy, and everything else is coming Bible proclaims for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like it's new. Right. It's been building for years. I never thought to it. I know. I never thought though I would be I know, right? I never thought I'd be at this point with this. I know. It's weird. Well, it's really weird, man. And and we're there's no going back. No. No going back. So it's a new world, man. But that's right. why the second coming is so important. Yeah. 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 I am too. I am too. Okay. You're welcome. Yeah. Let me just close with a word of prayer real quick, and then we'll be on our way. Lord, thanks for this time, and thanks for your word especially, and uh, for your being with each person here um, as we seek to understand what you've written. And we do trust that you'll guide us into it, myself included. Thanks for this time, and give us safety as we travel home this evening. We thank you for being here with us in Christ's name. Amen.